0: especially for these island nations where fish aren't just a food source, but they're also very culturally ingrained in the community and culture. The fishermen really do want to fish sustainably. And so when they learn what size the fish start reproducing at, they make it a goal to shoot bigger fish. Or even in the ancient hawaiian tradition there was taboos on catching fish during spawning season welcome
1: to the women in ocean science podcast hosted by me charlie young and me Mad Sinclair. we're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists
2: each week we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science
1: from fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas.
2: We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications
1: and smash down some gender stereotypes in the process.
2: So tune in every Monday for a podcast that
1: champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Hello and welcome back to another
2: episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. So I can't quite believe we've got this far into the podcast without a dedicated fisheries episode so if you've been waiting for this, this one's for you. Today on the podcast we're sitting down with Cassie Pardy, the co-founder of Poison Fisheries Research based out of Hawaii. Her research lab focuses on the life history of coral reef species, determining the age, growth and maturity of commonly targeted fish for the use in stock assessments and fisheries management. Today, we'll be discussing her paper, titled Growth and Maturation of Three Commercially Important Coral Reef Species from American Samoa, discussing not only the science, but about Cassie's passion for working with local fishermen to collect data and sharing the results back with the local fishing community. Cassie, hey, how are you doing? Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Um, Where are you in the world? What are you
0: up to? Hi, thanks for having me. I am in Hawaii, Maui right now, and it's a nice sunny morning. Gosh, I am
2: incredibly jealous about that. (laughs) Here in London, it is a grey, almost miserable, rainy evening. Um, not, Not ideal for a Thursday. Charlie, what about you in Bristol?
1: I mean, a minute ago, I was kind of basking in the glory that we had some sunshine, but equally now it's starting to look like it's going to get cloudy again. Not (laughs) quite Hawaii.
2: (laughs) Not quite Hawaii indeed. So Cassie, how long have you been
0: out in Hawaii? I've been in Hawaii since 2012. And my husband and I just moved from Oahu over to Maui in July. So New Island, same great weather. Wow,
1: <laughs> just <laughs> rubbing it in. I love it.
2: <laughs> and um, you are here, of course, with us today to talk about one of mine and Charlie's favorite thing, and this is coral reef fish. Uh, we're very, very excited to have you here to discuss your paper. Growth and maturation of three commercially important coral reef species in American Samoa. So, Cassie, would you like to jump right in and give us an abstract like summary? of your paper
0: so this project was pretty fun i got to go to american samoa twice and work with the the division of marine and wildlife resources um, which is their managing council in american samoa and we did two workshops the first workshop we taught people how to collect the samples how to measure and weigh the fish and how to take the ear bones out, which are called otoliths, is what we use for aging, and how to take the gonads out for the reproduction. And then they took samples for several months and sent me the samples in Hawaii. And I aged and did maturity studies for three different reef fish that are commonly caught there. Uh, Lethrinus rubroperculatus, which is a emperor fish, uh, Chloris japonensis, a uh, parrot fish, and nasa literatus, which is uh, the orange spine unicorn fish. And then I got to go back to American Samoa and present the data and do another workshop on how this data is used for management and um, assessments. Cool! Wow, hats off to you for going with the Latin
2: names there. That was very, very <laughs> impressive, and definitely something that I wouldn't have attempted. Um, so, for anyone listening, where is uh, American Samoa? what What is this uh, What is this nation like? what are What are their coral reefs like?
0: Yeah, so American Samoa is in the middle of the Pacific, and it's actually an archipelago um, with Samoa. And so American Samoa and Samoa straddle the date line and Samoa is its own country on one side of the date line. And it's the first country to start the day. And then American Samoa is on the other side of the date line and it's the last country to start the day. And so they have beautiful tropical reefs. Um, The people in American Samoa speak both English and Samoan, and they're just such a lovely culture and lovely people, but they really depend on coral reef fish for their food and their livelihood. So um, looking at the life history of these fish is really important so that the different management can work with the actual facts of those fish instead of just making up management without the data behind the size at reproduction or age.
2: Mm. And you you spoke in your paper as well that you know you've just mentioned that these these fish have obviously a, a commercial importance they're an incredibly important source of protein um, for for the nation but you also touched on fish having a cultural importance to the Samoan culture what would you say is the cultural importance of fish?
0: Yeah, fish are used a lot in Samoa and it's called faa Samoa, which means like giving and like the culture of Samoa and so fish are used in exchanges they're used for baby birthday parties they're used for weddings so there's a lot of trade of fish going on Uh, if there's a big ceremony or something they will hire people to go out and catch the fish for them because fish are really important for all these big ceremonies and parties and stuff that they have
1: Mm. it's beautiful isn't it because you know for nature to become so embedded in their culture, I mean, I think it's something that we, we are lacking here in the UK. And so when I learn about cultures that do have such a deep rooted connection with the ocean, it just sounds so magical and, and is so fascinating to hear about how different species have both, you know, an importance for sustaining their livelihoods, but also in every part of their lives and in ceremonies. Um, and so, you know, what are the main methods that these, these communities use to catch these fish? I imagine that, you know, it's for it very much small scale and subsidience sort of uh, methods. But if you could explain a little bit about the methods that they use, um, I'd love to hear more.
0: Most of these fish are non-commercially targeted. They're just for home consumption or for trade and cultural consumption but the parrot fish and the orange spine unicorn fish both are mainly caught using spear fishing. And these people go out without scuba tanks. they just hold their breath. They just have goggles and fins and go and spear these fish so they can hold their breath for really long times. And then the emperor fish is mainly caught with hook and line, but sometimes with net as well. So,
2: these three fish that you're looking at there, would you say there is any level of commercial fishing around? Uh, sorry, com- by commercial, I mean, in, in, are they being taken in any kind of industrial large scale or is this just a very small subsistence
0: nearshore fishery then? Um, it's hard to say with all, it's not commercial in the way that we would picture commercial fishing like the tuna industry or the cod fishery. It's commercial in more of a coral reef commercial way where mm-hmm. they are catching it and selling it to local markets in in American Samoa. So they're catching a lot, but not in the way that we would consider commercial. And it's hard to really know how much they're catching because there aren't good commercial or non-commercial catch records in American Samoa. We don't know how many people are fishing. There's no non-commercial license, so anyone can fish. And we don't know how much they're catching. Yeah. Uh, and this is very interesting, of course, because,
2: you know, in order to responsibly manage fisheries on any scale, it's, it's incredibly important to have that data on not only how much is being caught, but also this data that you have collected for this paper specifically, which is what are the life histories of this fish, um, and this will in turn help us to make uh, better management plans for the future. So, um, the objective of your study was, of course, to provide estimates for the growth, the lifespan, span, and size of maturity for these three targeted species from um, these different families of fish in American Samoa. So. How how were you doing this? How does one go about quantifying these things specifically?
0: So after the first workshop, I sent the, the people out to collect the samples for me, and they gathered length information, weight information, and then they would dissect the fish and In the head cavity under the brain are the ear bones, also called otoliths. And so the otoliths provide age for us. And what you do is you take the otolith and you grind it down really thin on a jeweler's wheel. Um, (laughs) And then, yeah. So it's fun. I have all this like equipment that jewelers use, and I'm grinding (laughs) fish bones. (laughs) Glamorous, (laughs) which is glamorous. Yeah. And then you look under the microscope and the otoliths have annuli that you can count like tree rings. And each annuli represents a year. And so you count all the the rings and that's how old the fish is. Do you know, I would love to know who figured this out. (laughs) Who
2: at one point in science decided to grind down the ear bone of a fish to see if they could you know age it I think it's absolutely fascinating
0: it really is well it's also very hard to find these bones they're very very small they're smaller than especially in reef fish they're smaller than like your pinky fingernail and they're under the brain in the head so I don't even know how they initially found this bone but in cold places it's actually a lot easier to count the rings, and if you just snap the otolith in half and use some fire, the, the rings will darken and you can just see it with your naked eye because the temperature shifts in colder places are so much more dramatic that the growth is so much more dramatic each year. But in tropical areas, we don't have those temperature changes, so the rings are a lot harder to see with the naked eye, which is why we have to grind it down and use transmitted light to see the rings oh it's wow. so
1: interesting because you know i i've actually had experience as well um dissecting fish reef fish specifically to try and find the otoliths and you know i can i can vouch for it they're tiny and you know it can be really fiddly um to to try and find them and also if you gosh this is getting graphic so anyone that doesn't want to hear graphic content <laughs> warning <please>. warning <laughs> Um, you know, you have to sever the head at a certain spot, you know, and, and not too far down, not too far up. Otherwise, one, you won't be able to find them or two, you'll actually cut into them um, and, and then could damage them. So it's, it's a very sort of technical task and not as easy as it maybe sounds to anyone listening at home.
2: Yeah, I do remember actually doing this during my undergraduate degree when we did a lot of fish dissection. But I think our fish were from, you know, the UK's very temperate seas. Um, but yes, I still remember struggling to to locate that back back in the day. <laughs> um, but back to the paper, we have we've digressed we have digressed a little bit. Um, so, what were you finding, Cassie, with these uh, otoliths? What was this telling you about the ages of the fish?
0: So for the, the most interesting one was the orange spine unicorn fish, which is a pretty small fish and it got up to 25 years of age, which a lot of people were very surprised to hear because, because it's so small, people think they just grow really fast and then die really early. But the orange spine unicorn fish could live up to 25 years, which was pretty interesting. Do you know what
2: that that's something that we actually, when Charlie and I were discussing the paper before, I was literally like, Charlie, did you know that these fish can live for 25 years? That, not to tell everyone my age, but I recently turned 25, um, and that's as old as me. And you know, when I've been diving on coral reefs and you know, it's never occurred to me, and I've studied fish on this on these reefs, and it's never occurred to me once that any of these fish could possibly have. A lifespan the same as my current age. So I think that's absolutely fascinating, Cassie.
0: Yeah, it turns out a lot of the reef fish that we initially thought didn't live that long actually live for a lot longer than most people assumed. Um, the blue spine unicorn fish in Hawaii can live up to sixty years. <gasps> oh my wow.
1: gosh! Oh my wow! Gosh. It's crazy. Um, And so this obviously has massive implications, right, for um, if you know the life histories of fish, then obviously that can inform management practices better. So this ultimately shows that, um, you know, they're long living, that they potentially have um, long gestation periods, potentially, I don't know, can you explain a little bit more about kind of how, what kind of impact does this have Um, on our understanding of how we should manage fisheries?
0: Yeah, Yeah, so it's quite interesting also because while these fish do live for a long time, they also reach maturity quite early. They grow fast, reach maturity, and then they um, stay mature for most of their lives. So naso unicornis, we actually only got very few immature samples when we were sampling because they reached um, maturity so early. But we estimated their maturity at 17.5 centimeters, which which we couldn't do age for because we didn't even get that many samples to estimate their age at maturity, but quite early, usually within one to two years.
2: And so talking about uh, estimating maturity, you also looked at the gonads in fish, uh, so the little testicles, fish testes, um, <laughs> and and ovaries, uh, so the, the sex organs, sorry for anyone non-scientist that's, that's listening. Tell us about um, what you were looking at firstly, how you were looking at it, and what you found.
0: We also trained our samplers to get the gonads. And yeah, gonads are male and female. A lot of people just hear gonads and think male, but male and female. And what we were looking at was uh, size at reproduction, but a lot of these fish that we gathered, because most of them were gathered through the markets or through the fishermen who are regularly targeting them, were that most of them were already mature when we got them, which was good for the fishery to know that they're targeting the mature fish. But mm. bad for our paper because we were trying to <laughs> determine size and maturity.
2: That's actually fantastic that you know they are targeting fish that are sex- sexually mature. And you know why? Why do we want to target sexually mature fish? Well, that means that we're if we're targeting juve- targeting juveniles, we are going to be affecting future populations because they won't have been able to reproduce yet. Um, so that's really great to hear. But could you tell us a little bit more about how are these fishermen identifying sexually mature uh, fish and that are that they're bringing to shore to
0: land how does a fisherman identify that The fisherman doesn't when they're fishing especially if you're spear fishing <laughs> you just look at the fish and that's the one you want um so it's really important for us to provide information about size and maturity so mm-hmm. that when the fisherman is out spear fishing and they see a fish that they think might be too small. They know not to shoot it. What's nice about the spear fishing industry is that you see the fish before you catch it. So there's no bycatch. And so if they know what size these fish start reproducing at, they can decide to let it swim away and go after a bigger fish. But what we do is we take the gonads and um, we get them processed at a lab in Hawaii. and then we look under the microscope at the cells of the eggs and see what stage the gonads are in for reproduction. And if if the histology or the microscope doesn't show that they've ever reproduced even once, then we say that they're immature.
1: Oh, wow. That's so interesting. That is so interesting. And how important is it that Fishermen, we might have covered this already, but how important is it that fishermen are are targeting the the right fish at the right age for the kind of management of these, you know, small scale fisheries?
0: Yeah, so it was really great to see that most of our samples were mature, because that means that fishermen normally are targeting that the size that they're targeting have already reproduced at least once. If the majority of our samples had turned out to be immature, then it could lead to overfishing because a lot of the fish wouldn't have had the opportunity to even reproduce. But on the other hand, the bigger fish reproduce exponentially more eggs than smaller fish. So you don't want to get the biggest ones either, which is what we talked about in our second workshop with the fishermen.
1: Okay, brilliant. So you've so what you've done essentially is is that you've you've gone and got the community involved in this data collection process. They've then brought these fish back to you. You've gathered data, and then you've actually fed this information back to them, which. I would argue is probably you know one of the most important things that you could you could do here and I think this is something where potentially marine conservation goes awry or doesn't quite um work is because there isn't this feedback um and kind of communication of the importance of the the data that's been found so this I imagine is really well it has obviously helped contribute to building a strong understanding um in these communities and I guess first of all My first question is, how did the communities react to you coming here and and asking them to get involved in this research? And then how did they react to when you fed that information back? Did you have any resistance or any skepticism?
0: I don't speak Samoan, which was my first problem. And (laughs) I am a tiny little blonde white girl, so I stand out quite a bit. But one of the co authors on my paper is from American Samoa and does speak Samoan. So, whenever we would go and interact with the fishermen or when they came to our workshops, um, he was the one who was speaking with them and presenting the information because I thought it was much more important for people from the local community to hear from one of their own members than to hear from some outsider who's just telling them what to do. Instead, it was more of a dialogue between community members.
1: That's mm. brilliant. And I think really, really important that it's about empowerment. Um, and as you say, you know, a lot of, you know, Mads and I both have, you know, traveled to other countries and done research in other places. And I think we do really need to, you know, move away from this sort of white saviorism kind of approach and ensure that, It's not just, you know, us turning up there and saying, you have to protect this area and not involving the community in that or or kind of coming in and trying to set the rules. It's about that community empowerment, Um, because, you know, if you engage with the community, they want to protect their marinescape. You know, this is this is the thing. And I think this is where marine conservation has gone has gone wrong in the past. Um, But Mads, did you want to jump in at all there?
2: No, I was just going to say that I think it sounds absolutely brilliant, uh, what you've done. And I really love that it is um, not a community based initiative, but it has been through and through this, this community led project where, you know, you have empowered them to to do the data collection and to learn themselves. Um, So I think that's, I think that's really important. And I, I really love the way the way that you've done this. And I think it's something that we should be replicating in lots of different areas of research as Charlie said that we're carrying out across the tropics and I think it's definitely an area that we've we've fallen down on before I've I've worked on a number of projects before where the local community hasn't really been involved and when you are you know the stewards of that reef and it is your um you know your uh what's the word home yeah (laughs) your your home for one and also your um I was going to say asset um livelihood Livelihood. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it really is so incredibly important to make sure that, as Charlie said, we're not just coming in and doing the research and, and leaving with the community no better off for it. So yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, brilliant. Um, and I'd love to ask you, so you did mention that you, you've been working with the fishing community to co- collect data here, but are you continuing to do that now back in Hawaii?
0: Yeah, that's one of our main goals is to build a bridge between science and the local fishing community. Like you said, a lot of times scientists come in, gather the data, get their answers and leave without returning that information to the fishing community. So Mm -hmm. all of our projects here in Hawaii have a big um, component of community involvement. Um, We get samples from the fishermen. Every time I'm cutting a fish with fishermen, I tell them what I'm doing. I describe how the otoliths work for aging. I describe what I need the gonads for. And then once we finish our projects and we have those answers, we give it back to the community. We make flyers and brochures and put them in fishing stores and we go on the radio and we post on our Instagram page about size and maturity and age so that the fishing community knows what information we gathered, they see how the information works and they're more willing to work with us for future projects.
2: And um, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. This is very relevant. I'm I'm sure you might have already been asked this before, but um, we've all seen Seaspiracy recently, which put out a blanket statement that, you know, no fishery is sustainable. But obviously the research that you are doing is to ensure that we can responsibly and sustainably manage fisheries, um, because we want to continue the food security for Island nations, such as Hawaii, American Samoa, other Pacific nations that, you know, share, um, a strong reliance on the ocean for food, especially with these small artisanal subsistence fisheries. Um, How important do you think it is that we share with the world that sustainably managing fisheries
0: is? Especially for these island nations where fish aren't just a food source, but they're also very culturally ingrained in the community and culture. The fishermen really do want to fish sustainably. And so when they learn what size the fish start reproducing at, they make it a goal to shoot bigger fish or even in the ancient Hawaiian tradition, there was taboos on catching fish during spawning seasons. And so it's been passed down from ancient Hawaiian times that if the fish is spawning, you don't catch it. Or if the fish is too small, you don't catch it. Or you don't catch these fish during certain times because that's when they're feeding. And so I think a lot of people in these Polynesian cultures really do want to fish sustainably and have those fish for future generations.
1: It's so, so powerful, just, you know, ancient wisdom and knowledge that's already there. And I know that in Western cultures, we like to, you know, think of ourselves as incredibly, you know, um, savvy savvy but actually i would say that yeah we are so disconnected and that sort of wisdom that is there before we've had any science to kind of explain why you may or may not want to um exploit a resource or exploit fish during spawning it's just incredible that that has been inherently part of their cultures and of their knowledge for so long. And you're right, they do want to fish sustainably. And, you know, it's more important for them than so many other people in the world because of this reliance and this dependence on the ocean. And, I mean, when we talk about fisheries and and whatnot. We there's obviously a lot of information out there that's showing that climate change is having quite a profound impact, you know, on fisheries, on on where you where you find fish, that they're, you know, now moving out of their normal, um, the normal areas where they would be found. And so how are the American Samoan communities being impacted by this? And are you seeing impacts
0: um on their fisheries? Um yeah, that's a good question. Uh, A lot of their fisheries in American Samoa and here in Hawaii are coral reef fisheries. And so the fish species rely on the corals for their home and their habitat and their food. And so if the corals are bleaching due to acidification of the ocean or uh, warming events, then the fish are losing their habitat or the corals are becoming algae dominated and they're losing their habitat. So I think, There's a lot more pressure on these fishing communities than just fishing and that will have an effect in the future. But I am not sure how it's currently affecting the catch just because we don't have those records.
1: Mm.
2: And um, you did mention in the discussion of your paper, and I thought this was really interesting, that um, warmer waters might be yielding populations of shorter lived fish.
0: Yeah. For the emperor fish that we studied, they've done age studies in Japan, too, and also in Guam, I think. And the ages were older in Japan than were in American Samoa. And that's because in Japan, they have a lot cooler water temperatures than in American Samoa. So in Samoa, the water's warmer, so the fish can grow faster, reach maturity faster, Whereas in colder water temperatures, fish are um, naturally slower growing. They need to conserve more energy because of the water temperature. So they grow slower, reach maturity slower, and then usually live longer.
1: Wow,
2: that's really interesting. That's absolutely fascinating.
1: That's completely new to me. I love that. I'm going to go and um, definitely use that at the pub and uh, tell everyone (laughs) that new cool fact. (laughs) So...
2: In terms of climate change, um, you know, this will be warming waters even further. Is it necessarily a bad thing that we're seeing fish reach maturity
0: faster, growing faster? Maybe not for reaching maturity faster, but again, the older, longer living fish, the biggest fish are the ones that produce exponentially more eggs that are healthier eggs and more likely to survive than maybe the first time new fish parents that are just spinning out (laughs) eggs for the first time. So we do want those fish, those older, slower growing fish to get to those big ages and produce those big numbers of eggs.
2: And you know what, this is a great segue from fish parents into parenthood yourself, Cassie. Um, You mentioned to us previously that you are a new mom to a one-year-old son and you're currently learning How to Balance a Productive Research Career with Being a Parent. So tell us,
0: how has this experience been? Uh, Well, it's been quite interesting, especially this year. My son was born right before the world shut down. And so the pandemic was also kind of nice because my husband is in the Coast Guard and he's gone for long periods of time. But with the pandemic, he was able to be at home a lot more. And we also moved in the middle of the pandemic to Maui. So my lab is in my house. And when my son can go to daycare, it's good because I'll get a half day of work But on days where he doesn't have daycare or if he's sick like he's been for the past week, then I am balancing trying to take care of a one-year-old who's getting into everything and getting reports done Yesterday, I had to take him with me to dissect a fish at a fisherman's house. <laughs> um, so that was Amazing. fun. He, what does he think about fish dissection? I will like hand him the fish so he could like touch it and stuff, and he's not too into it. But <laughs> give him, I give him some of our vials and test tubes to hold and play with while I'm cutting, and he's fine with that. So. Luckily, my work takes me to different people's houses and they're, they always like to see a baby. So it's been good for me because I work for myself and I can set my own hours and I can work from home. But for people who have to leave, I don't know how they do it. <laughs>
1: No, I I don't know how they do it. I mean, I think that most parents are are superheroes. um, And, you know, through the pandemic, it's been incredibly hard. And I've got siblings with kids and they've been both working full-time jobs and also homeschooling. And it's just absolutely crazy. But I love that you've been taking him to the lab or to dissections with you. And it's, you know, as your own boss, I suppose you maybe don't have any kind of negativity coming from you know people your boss above you who might be I guess not not happy that you've decided to take that step into motherhood and this could be detracting from your academic work but how have you felt in terms with like the wider community have you felt like you've had a lot of support or have you what is the kind of reaction from the wider kind of community around you been have you felt
0: supported um I've felt Pretty supported with the fishing community. When I was pregnant, we were working on a crab tagging project. So I was going out on fishing boats, seven months pregnant, um, wow. to tag crabs and stuff. And everyone was always very supportive and helpful. And even though I was pregnant and had to pee all the time, they were always very nice <laughs> and turned their back. To life. <laughs> I love that. It's been hard because there's not very many uh, role models for me. Mm. Uh, most of the people I work with are men and they either don't have kids or their wife takes care of the kids. So I, I don't have too many people to look at and say like, oh, this is how they do it. So I'm trying to figure it out as I go.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting to hear the word role model come up again um, mm. as Charlie and I have been recording this series um well, a, a key theme that's come up with our podcast guests many or most of whom are lead authors on papers which is also one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast so that we could give you know other women in marine science um you know research role models to look up to but it's been really really interesting to hear these women who are lead authors saying you know I wish I had more role models um or I I found a role model recently and so um that's actually one of the the key things that we're trying to you know, promote in this podcast is to give more women in our community a role model to look up to, and I think I love hearing what you say about you know looking for a role model, kind of in the sphere of of being a mother um, and and being pregnant as well, because within our industry often we do feel, and I definitely feel this pressure myself, when I I do eventually you know want to have children, am I going to have to choose between my career or my family um and if I do choose to try and have both how how can I balance that and you know for me Cassie hearing you you know take your son to dissections and be pregnant at seven months and still going out on boats and doing all the things that you know I hope to continue doing um it it, it is kind of you know you're kind of a role model to me already in that sense showing me that you know if you, if you want to have that balance, you can find that balance. Um, so really thank you for sharing that with
0: us today. Yeah. I mean, luckily one, one of my mentors, um, is a woman who had a child a year before me. So she was really helpful and gave me a lot of pointers, but she also works at a normal job where she can set boundaries. Whereas I, am working from home and I work on contracts. So that's a little bit different, but I can always ask her like how she does it. So yeah, I also think finding role models and mentors that you can talk to and just express your worries to is really important.
1: Yeah. You know, what do you think then that we could do? So this, you know, as Mad said, role models and kind of the lack of um, women at higher levels in our industry and the lack of having women to look up to it is a recurring theme it's something that comes up time and time again and we've we've all experienced it what do you think we can do um or is it down to us is it is it down to men um but you know what what do you think we can do to kind of um try and fix this or improve this situation you've i guess been trying to find your own way but do you have any suggestions for how we could kind of make sure that you know in the future for all of those budding marine biologists that do come through that
0: there are role models well I mean I think with like social media and like your guys' podcast and social media platform where other people can see that there are uh, these women working in these situations then it's kind of showing them that yeah it is possible there's another social media, platform that I like called Mothers in Science that I like to follow for the same reason because it shows women working in science who have also figured out the motherhood issue. So just highlighting women in general and showing that these things are possible gives um, upcoming people women to look at and say, look, if they can do it, then I can do it too. Wow. I'm absolutely going to
2: have to check that out. That sounds brilliant. I hadn't heard of that before. That sounds fab. What a great initiative. So I think we are almost coming to the end of our recording time now. And there's just one more thing I wanted to ask you. And that was, you've touched on a little bit about being at home and having your lab at home um, and, you know, writing lots of grants. What is it that you actually do? Could you tell us a bit more about the organization or research group that you run?
0: Yeah, so I started a research group with a fellow graduate student called Poseidon Fisheries Research, and basically we work on different projects within the Pacific Islands, and it's nice because we don't have a nine-to-five job, but the downside is all of our funding comes from grants and contracts, so we're always looking for the next project we're always hustling to write grants or contracts to get those projects going. But on the positive side, um, we do get to pick projects that we're interested in, and we always get to change it up and do different things, which has been fun.
1: That's super cool. Um, and, you know, I hats off to you for kind of the grant writing. That's always something that you know, I've admired about academics is having that kind of stamina to just keep writing grants and, and, you know, the landscape sort of ever changing, but it's been really, really fascinating to hear about your research. And just before we close up, this is something we ask all our guests is if you've got any inspiring final words or something that you'd like to share with our listeners, um, before we end.
0: Oh, shoot. Putting me on the spot.
1: <laughs> Gosh, it's the no, it's the
2: real no pressure question, isn't it? Give us all your wit and wisdom.
0: <laughs> I would just say, if you are an upcoming marine scientist, um, find people in your field that you would like to learn from, and just reach out to them. Both of the mentors that I currently have, I just reached out to from the blue, and they latched on and I've been able to learn so much from them and so just keep reaching out and making connections it's all about connections in this field and so the more connections you can make the better your chances are of going where you want to go
1: completely agree love that and just as well so that anyone who wants to continue following your work or learn more about your research are you on social media and um, where can people find you
0: Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I feel like I'm too old for TikTok at this point. But um, (laughs) our research lab is on Instagram at at Poseidon Fisheries. And then I'm also on Instagram at Cassie.Kiffin. K-Y-F-F-I-N.
2: Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today, Cassie. It's been absolutely brilliant to have you and we also know that you have two more papers uh, in the works at the moment so we will have to get you back on to discuss those as well yeah thanks for coming on yeah thanks for inviting
0: me this has been fun
2: Been listening to the Women in Ocean Science podcast brought to you by Women in Ocean Science and hosted by me, Mad Sinclair, and Charlie Young. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give it a share, and you can find us on socials as at Women in Ocean Science. We are a non-profit organization, so every like, comment, share, and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and I hope you have an awesome week.